Now, I don't know about you, but I could watch those kind of videos like for days. I did actually try and find the right one. And they're so interesting to me for several reasons. One, it's just fun to see how things are built in really fast motion. But what I found is I was watching them over and over and over again. It's interesting how long they take on the ground. Like half the video, I don't know if you've noticed, is them driving around the ground. And you're just like, what are they doing down there? It's like they just drive their cars around on this foundation before anything ever goes up. And the more I watched it, I realized in all of these videos, half the time, half the prep is all about getting the foundation ready before they send anything up in the air. And as I thought about that, it's really kind of interesting that you have to blast away and take out all the stuff on the ground and make sure the ground is solid before you go up with any kind of structure. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which we have been working through for the past about five weeks, it's the same kind of structure. For most of the time so far, we have been blasting away at these foundational things of our world so that we can build something new up in which God wants to create each one of us. If you notice, if you work through this book, you will see him attack about every type of thing that we chase in this world. Just completely annihilate it and blast the rocks and the, the things that we build up, the things that we thought were important, blast at that so that now, here we are in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, he can start to build something new. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that chapter. If you have your notes, pull those out. And if you're on the aisle, will you do me a favor and pass the basket of pins down so everyone can take notes today? Because we're going to blast a little bit of this foundation before we build up today. If you will, raise your hand if you believe that the, if the Bible says it, then I do it. And that's the philosophy for my life. The Bible says it, so I do it, and that's good enough for me. Raise your hand if that's you. You kind of fall in that camp. The Bible says it, so I'm good. Okay. Sounds like a really good answer, right? It sounds like a good answer. In fact, 55% of evangelical Christians say yes. That's kind of how it is. If the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. Now, if you didn't raise your hand because you were a little worried that maybe there was a part two, uh, you might be saying this. Raise your hand if you follow some of it, but you feel like, other parts are no longer relevant for today. It's kind of, you kind of fall in that camp. I pick and choose what parts to follow and what parts are not for today. Okay? Most of you are scared to put your hand up now. I get it. But let me show you why that might be a correct answer. Let's look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 has a bunch of laws in it, right? There's be holy like I am holy, the Lord your God. Okay, that sounds good. I'll be raising our hand to that one. Observe my Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath being talked about here would be Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. We decided to change that later. So, hard to say if that's the same if we follow that. Do not go about spreading slander. Okay, that one we're relatively good at. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Most of you still observing that one. <laughs> uh, do not eat any meat with the blood that's still in it. So if you're a uh, vegetarian, you're still good. Here we go on. Do not cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Huh? Is your mouth? <laughs> do not put tattoo marks on yourself. Now some of you are like, yeah, we should still be doing that one. Others of you have let that one go. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the leaves of your harvest. And this was about 
leaving some leaves for the poor, the widow, the orphan, uh, leaving those behind. So, do we follow all the laws of the Bible? There's 613 more. Let's go ahead and go to all of them. <laughs> no, somewhere along the way, we've decided that certain ones are not culturally relevant to today. But who decided that? Where did we get that? Because right in the middle of Leviticus 19, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now when we grabbed onto it and said, yes, that's relevant for today, we talk about it, we see it, everyone talks about it. And where is it? Leviticus 19, same chapter. So that one we said is okay, some others we've said are not. Interesting, right? Then someone comes along and says, well, that's the Old Testament, you know, things have changed a little bit. So let's go to the New Testament, because we do it in the New Testament as well. Uh, several places. How about we use Jesus in Luke? His disciples come to him and he says, um, all the other teachers, their disciples, are being taught to pray by the teacher. Teacher, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus says, okay, I will. When you pray, here's how you pray. This is what I want you to say. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. And he goes on and on and on. You see the Lord's Prayer there. So, when you pray, I want you to say this. When did we decide that that's no longer what we have to pray anymore? That this was, well, what he's really saying is you need to pray like this. This is kind of a template, if you will. Because for many, many years, in fact, it's not that long ago, the church did quote this every time they came. It was liturgical. But we learned uh, really the evangelical church said just citing prayers in church, just citing this prayer in church, it doesn't go deep and change your life. What this prayer is about is connecting with God in these particular areas constantly, and we need to pray constantly. You don't have to pray this exact prayer. But who decided that? Someone came along and had discernment to decide something like that, and that's kind of the point I want to get to, is that we use this discernment all over the Bible to decide things. And we decide in a way that says, this one's relevant, this one's not. This is culturally different today. This one um, is, what he's getting at is there's a story he's trying to tell us, and we're supposed to connect it to today. We do it all the time. We're blasting at this foundation that says, there's a story that you're supposed to be getting out of every single chapter, every single law, every single message, whether it's Jesus, or whether it's Ecclesiastes, all the way back to the beginning when they are attacking these things that are so abnormal, there's still a story in which we're supposed to be connecting with God. And here's the point. The whole Bible is about you connecting to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The whole Bible, every story, every law, every part, is about you connecting to Jesus, knowing Him as your personal Savior, having the Holy Spirit within you to effectively move everything that you do. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the way, is the single event that proves our faith. It's the event that demonstrates our hope and motivates our love and our action in everything that we do. There's 4,200 religions. You can go out and shoot out of 4,200. The thing that separates us as Christians is Jesus Christ rising from the dead so that he can be our savior. 
The rest of this Bible is about connecting with him. Without Jesus, we have the Bible. It does not look the way it looks today. Without Jesus, we would have a, a really nice book and it wouldn't be in the same form that it is today. Think about it this way. If we're teaching our kids, our children, about the Bible, we send them to Sunday school, we drag them to church with us, we spend lots of money on sending them off to camp, and then they go to college, and one professor, some professor who probably doesn't even know your child's name, you're, he's just, you're just, the child is just another face in this crowd, that one professor that has no relationship with our son or daughter says something about philosophy that goes counterintuitive of what they've learned in the church, and all of a sudden your child's faith is never the same. They decide in that moment they no longer want to be a Christian. How is that possible? Because I've heard that story many times. My kid went to college, this professor said something, and now they don't know if they want to follow God anymore. How is that possible? It's possible if we're just teaching the Bible, and we're not teaching what a relationship with Jesus Christ is all about. We're not teaching ourselves and our children what it means to be a follower of Christ, in that it's a relationship. It's something that's so personal that it's within you. It has to be more than the Bible, a book of teachings, a book of laws. We get messed up with law all the time. The, the uh, uh, Pharisees, this is where they went down, is they got so into the law. The law became bigger than this story, this message, this love that they had with God and later with Jesus Christ. So Ecclesiastes is attacking that. It's trying to stop that from happening. What does it do? You see it in your notes? It goes after materialism. Now, materialism is the possession will satisfy. So go out and get more, better, and different. Now, we should know that doesn't work. But we all have to try it at least once. Probably some of us are still trying. We go after stuff. If I can get enough stuff, if I can get that next thing, then I'll be happy. And this book just destroys that. It says not only is that wrong, but it's the opposite of what God wants for you. It's the opposite of what God teaches us, and you'll use other people just for your own gain, which is the opposite of what I believe about my people. He goes after hedonism. This is the life is short, so live like there's no tomorrow. It's the party we've seen. So we have been given freedom through Christ, who's given us this freedom to now go out and do whatever, whatever we want. So what do we do with that freedom? We use it to enslave ourselves again to something. It's so ironic. But that's what we do. We take freedom and we then become enslaved into something in this world. And God says, that's not what I want for you. I want the best for you. You do have freedom. You have absolute freedom. But don't use it in things that are going to actually enslave you. I don't want that for you. It goes after humanism. Uh, Corlys Lamont describes humanism this way. Humanism having its ultimate faith in man. It believes that human beings possess the power or potentiality of solving their own problems through reliance primarily upon reason and scientific method applied with courage and vision. Basically what he's saying is man can do all things. And we like that. We talk about it all the time. We are man. We are woman. There's nothing that we cannot do until there's something we can't do or someone lets us down. Another man, another woman lets us down. 
And then this worldview starts to crumble because it's like, wait, there's nothing I can't do. But then we realize we're frail. There's lots of things we can't do. And this whole worldview falls apart. And God says, you are man, you are woman. But will you trust in me? Will you follow me? Because I want to do this life with you. And you are frail. And there are things that you cannot do. But with me, all things are possible. Then it goes out with fatalism. This is the game is fixed, so don't even play it. A lot of people like this one because it's just the world we live in. Nature and science and whatever, that's all going to happen. The life happens. So don't try and play this game in a way in which you think that the world is not going to bring down terrible things. And we go into these worlds of depression and despair and even suicide. When God wants so much more for you, He wants you to enjoy life. Yeah, there's a lot of natural things that will happen, but He still wants you to enjoy. See, the book has been blasting the ground for so long. You're watching the video. At this point, you're still watching the trucks go on the ground and still work on this foundation. He's blasting and blasting and blasting because you have to let all of that go before he can build what is new. Because of sin in our world, he has to blast at it and get all the absurd and the meaningless and the stupid out of the way so he can build something new. This is why I love this book. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, So I reflected on all of this, and I just recap it all for you. I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Where he's going to take this conversation next is that we don't know what's going to happen next. We can walk out that door and we don't know what is in store for us. Okay, What are we going to do with that information? Are we going to go into all those other areas again? Or are we going to live a different way? He says, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. All as it is with the good and so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes them all. In other words, spoiler alert, you're all going to die. That's really what he's getting at. No matter you're good or bad, everybody dies. I didn't, I'm, I'm afraid if that was new information for you. But what are we going to do with that? Does that mean now we're going to go into fatalism or humanism or materialism? What are we going to do with that information? What? Knowing that we all will eventually die and we don't know when, we don't know how it's going to happen. Could be tomorrow, could be 20, 30 years from now. Who knows? What are you going to do with that knowledge? See, the same story really comes up in the prodigal son of the New Testament. It's the same sort of story where you, you are in this moment and the prodigal son decides, I don't want to wait for my father's guy to get my inheritance. I want to live like now. I want it all now. And so the, this prodigal son takes it and goes and lives this life that he wants to live and realizes, oh, wow, it's meaningless. It's pointless. It's absurd. And as he's sitting there, he goes, I would rather be in my father's house as a servant than still continue with the stupidity that I decided to follow. So he goes back to the father, and there's this moment of reconciliation that happens, where he says to his father, I would rather be a servant in your house. I would rather be a servant in your house than the path that I decided to follow. 
But when he goes back to the Father, in this moment of reconciliation, the Father loves him and brings him in. It's the same story told in a different way. All of these stories do what? Connect us to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, saying, I want reconciliation with you, and I want to be with you. Don't chase the absurd. Go with me. Be with me, because I have a better plan for your life. I love you. I care for you. I want to spend eternity with you. It goes on, the hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. I should stop here and tell you that dogs aren't pets in this culture. And so it's kind of a weird verse if you don't know that. Dogs are the lowest of the low, they not be your pet in your house. As opposed to the lion. Not that it's a pet, but they love the lion. It was this regal creature that they had in all their drawings, and every king wanted to be a lion king. So when you read this, what you're really seeing here is they're saying, even a live dog, you know, the worst of the worst, is better than a dead lion. What are you going to do with this life? Are you going to live in a way that says, I'm going to be alive in it? Or are you going to chase after things that are dead? When the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy, they vanish. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Basically saying this life matters, what are you doing with it? So what does matter? What does matter while you're here? That's where he moves next. In your points that you have in your notes, the first one there is about being content. Am I content with wherever I am? The verse is, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. You already have this God who loves you and adores you and who wants the best for you. So enjoy your life. Can you be content right where you are? Or will you continue to search and seek things that will leave you empty inside? Can you be content right now in mind, body, and soul? Will you be content? If you're not, then watch out for self-medication. That's all the first chapters. You'll find a way to self-medicate so you can find your contentment. Or you can just be content right now. The second thing he goes after, he says, the Holy Spirit is bringing purity and power to my life. The verse reads, always be clothed in white. That's a reference to purity. You see it all over the Bible. And always anoint your head with oil. That's about power. He's anointing you with the power of God. So will you live this life with purity and power? I like to describe it as living life to the fullest. The fullness of purity. We see it throughout the Bible in several places. The purity and putting off of the old self, who you were before. Romans 6, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, all talks about you are now new creations. You're a new creation in Christ. So you're not subject to the old ways. In Romans chapter 6, it tells us that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Whenever I talk about that chapter, I talk about what if you walked around life with a dead body on your back? It'd be really weird, right? It'd be weird to be like a walking dead scenario where you have this dead body just dragging with you and smell it be weird and everyone would think you're incredibly weird for doing it. But just imagine it for a moment. There's a dead body just on your shoulders. And so everywhere you went, you wanted to keep this dead body with you. 
Now, there's no way we would do that because of a lot of reasons. And yet what the Bible tells us is you have been made alive. You're a new creation. You have now been given new life. Why would you continue to bring your old self with you? Why would you bring this dead person with you? And yet we do. We are constantly talking about who we were in the past, things and mistakes that we've made, what keeps us from living a life for God, what keeps us from serving and helping and giving. We always think about our past. We want to bring the dead body into the future. And there might be consequences for your past, but you are free from those things. You can let those things go and let that corpse off of your shoulders and say, I am going to live a life in purity and power and the fullness that God has given me as a new creation in Him. I am rebuilding a new foundation that is now allowing God to do something new in me in this world. That is what He calls us to. That is what He wants us to live. The third thing He goes into is loving your spouse, which is really interesting. As a part of his way of living, he throws in love your spouse. He says, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life, meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. It's kind of a dark way of saying things, but he's saying, enjoy your spouse. All your meaningless days. The comforts, the delights, the passions of your spouse. Now, why would he do that? Why would he make such a big deal about this? Well, it comes up many times throughout the Bible. This union of marriage. This union of marriage is God's way of showing you the intimacy he wants to have with you. So fascinating that it would be here. Because it's all throughout the Bible that God wants this intimate, personal relationship with you. He wants, he tells stories, and he shows it in so many different ways to say, this, this Holy Spirit that dwells in you is so close it's so intimate that you know his thoughts. You know what it's talking to you even when you're not talking. You, when you're somewhere else, you're thinking about it. Just like a spouse. When you can see him across the room and you know exactly what they're thinking, whether it's good or bad in that scenario. Right? When you're calling them, even though you're going to see them that night and left them that morning, you still call them three or four times throughout the day. Why do we do that? Because we just have this incredibly close relationship with our spouse, and we love them. And we want them to be a part of everything that we do. And God says, yes, I gave you that as a gift so that you would also understand what I want with you. It's all a gift. You don't have that in heaven because you have Jesus, you have God, and you're with him. But he shows you it here so you understand what the intimacy looks like. The fourth thing he says is throw yourself fully into whatever. Interesting statement. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor cunning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Again, he dark spins everything. But he's saying, whatever you do, do it with pride, do it with joy, do it with skill, as if God gave your hands to do it. Do whatever you're doing, whatever it is, just enjoy it and do it well, because you have been given those hands and those gifts and those skills to be used by God to do good things. My favorite verses of this entire book come next. The race is not to the swift, but the battle is strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them all. It's such a great 
uh, imagery. We don't know what's going to happen. There's first chance things that happen all the time. There's bad things that happen. There's good things that happen. We don't know. So just be you. Be who God has created you to be and live to the fullest. Content, loving your spouse, enjoying your life, pure and power. Just be who God has created you to be. And stop chasing the meaningless, chasing the wind, chasing the absurd, chasing stupid, as my kids would say. Stop doing that and enjoy who God has made you to be because we don't know what happens next. We're going to close our time with communion today. And the reason I chose to put communion into this particular message is because what happens with communion is it's a remembrance of what happened on the cross. What happens on the cross? Jesus dies for our sins so we can be rebuilt into a new creation that God has created as our Savior. And then he gives us the same opportunity as we accept him. That you can now be rebuilt in him and live a life that God has created you to be. So as we take the bread and the juice, the bread representing the body that was broken for our behalf, the juice of the blood that was poured out on our behalf, we take these things and we take them as a remembrance, which it calls us to throughout the Bible, saying, remember me when you do this. But today I want to add a piece to it. I want to add this piece of remembering that you were also rebuilt as a new creation in Him, and that you don't have to be limited by anything. God has built you new. So as we move into this time, there's four tables, two in the front, two in the back. And we're going to be singing a song. It's called Build My Life. And in it, it says, He is the firm foundation for me. Jesus is the firm foundation for my life. So when you go, you get grab bread, you grab your juice. If you go, you pray with your family or whoever you came with today. Spend some time with God remembering the cross. And then I want you to come back right after that. And singing this song and remembering also that we have been rebuilt in Him. And if you're in here today and you don't know this Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's what the whole book's about. You have to start there. Don't miss this. It's all about Him. Every story, every law, every amusing part that you're not sure why we don't or do, it's all to show Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that personal relationship with Him, What I'm going to ask is if you are here and you are, you need to start that relationship. You have some questions, you just want prayer. Myself and Matt Dates are going to be on both sides up here. And we're here to pray for you. So just come up to us and we'll walk you through whatever that question you may have or just pray with you. But if you will, will you stand with me?